I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Excelsior Capital Club podcast. I have with me today, Sean Mooney. Sean is the founder and CEO of Blue Wave, an intelligent marketplace trusted by more than 500 of the world's top private equity firms, leading family offices and thousands of proactive businesses to connect them with best-in-class third-party resources they need for due diligence, value creation, and preparing for sale. Sean founded Blue Wave as a solution to a problem he faced every day while in the private equity industry for nearly 20 years. Sean, thanks for joining us. Brian, it's great to be here with you. Good to see you, man. And just if we act casual on the show, it's because Sean, I know each other socially. We both live in Nashville. Our kids go to school together and we bump into each other at a lot of events. And I've been thinking about having them on for a while. So I'm glad we could finally do it. And you are we're maybe an early wave of a lot of these private equity folks moving from New York and elsewhere to Nashville. Before we get into kind of the core of the business, I'd love to hear your commentary on like what led you to that choice to move to town and how that experience has been and what you're seeing, especially within the asset management, alt, private equity, family office world of this influx of capital and personnel into the Middle Tennessee region. Absolutely. It's my... I moved to Nashville almost six years ago, which now makes me almost as local as anyone. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. yeah. <laughs> and now my, my big fear is all the people like me moving here and totally ruin this place. Yes. So we're trying to want to be the last ones in, but it's Nashville has been everything we ever hoped it could be. The people are amazing. The food is great. It's albeit a heavier dining experience, which caused me to probably put on some <laughs> I had to lose eventually. But we moved here really to start a business. 
and to seek a, in some ways a better life or at least a, an easier one, even though we came from a place that we really loved. We were living in Darien, Connecticut, and my wife grew up in Connecticut. And we absolutely, I think, appreciated where we came from, but thought there's maybe a way to change the dynamic. And then really as a result of wanting to found a company and be an entrepreneur, we had this idea that it would be pretty expensive to, to start a business in New York. And so I, I did a market study and that's why we're here. I looked at columns on a spreadsheet, one of which said fun. And I think my wife said, you're taking all the fun out of this. Can we do it some other way? But it, it worked. Yeah. And it's been just tremendous to see it. I've been here 15 years. My wife's a local native and it's wild. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So yeah, you're definitely old school. Six years qualifies as an OG these days. Let's get into kind of the business and your journey there by starting with this question, because not to age you, but you've been in private equity for a while now. Is private equity taking over the world? You know, it's, it's a very good question. I don't, I don't know that it's taking over the world, but it's certainly representative of the economy and a major force in the economy. There are, depending how you calculate it, 5,000 private equity funds in the U.S. alone. There are hundreds of billion dollars of dry capital. They're investing across the economy. And it's moved from a, and maybe evolved from an industry that was in some ways about in the early days, as much as about an arbitrage, where you could invest in an asset in, in maybe a way that was less efficient, you could optimize the company and then sell it more efficiently through an investment banker process. The industry, like anything where there's great opportunity, has matured quite substantially, which means they're buying it and investing it at the intersection much closer to supply and demand, which means as a, you know, as in terms of, you know, its impact on the world is, you know, whether it's altruistic or selfishly altruistic, they're now transforming companies in some ways because they have to. And so they're fundamentally making these businesses bigger, better, more people, more innovation because the economics of the industry and Econ 101 is compelling to do so. So it's in every pocket of the industry. And I think they're having a pretty meaningful impact on the U.S. economy, but also global economy in terms of growth and development. Do you think it's positive there? Are so fewer publicly traded companies or companies are waiting longer to go public? I know I've heard criticism on both sides of the aisle that private equity is a very powerful force for job creation, value creation, that a lot of these companies that were public were zombies or, you know, living on debt and weren't actually creating value for stakeholders or shareholders. I mean, what's your review there on what is certainly something we've seen play out pretty dramatically over the last five or 10 years. Yeah, I think the private equity industry evolved really because of the in-between you know, for companies that were smaller than those who could go public. And if you go back to the roots of the industry, your options as a business builder and owner was to borrow bank debt. If you happen to be on the West Coast, you could get venture capital. Um, or you could, if you got big enough, you could go public or you could sell your entire company to another company. And the early kind of developers and, and builders of the industry realized there had to be a middle. You know, we're a middle market. We're smaller to middle market, you know, medium, big to even big size companies can access capital in a way that weren't available in public companies. I think where private equity has an advantage is they can think further out. One of the trappings, as you talk with people who you know who run public companies, is that they 
fall victim to this quarterly cadence where they have to make someone happy every single quarter. And so their decisions become quite tactical because that's where the incentives are. The private equity uh, businesses, I think, in some ways are liberated from that because they can think you know, three to 10 years ahead and make decisions that are probably more chess-like than checkers life. So as you referenced, private equity has, has matured dramatically and continues to. I think your company is, is evidence of that in terms of you're a advisory consulting firm for this niche industry, right? So you're like a niche consultant for a niche industry, which is just how deep this ecosystem goes. I want to tie in the family office world. I've had a lot of conversations with folks in that space that say that family offices are a superior investment solution to even private equity. You you said private equity long-term hold, not beholden to quarter to quarter reporting numbers, but but families seem to be able to take it to that next step where they have a 50, maybe a hundred year time horizon, super flexible capital. Are you seeing family offices behave more like private equity funds and private equity funds behaving more like family offices? There always seems to be like a crossing of the streams in that regard. I think you're absolutely right. And and if you look at some of the some of the criticism of private equity in 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 the world is they say, well their their horizon maybe is too short. They're looking for three year periods. Why aren't they looking to build seven, eight, nine, ten years? And then the family offices will say, Hey, we have hundred year perspectives, we have multi-generational perspective, but maybe they can't bring the same resources to bear that a mechanized private equity fund can. And I think you're, you're, it's a, it's a very great observation that you had that they're kind of trying to meet in the middle where private equity firms are starting to have longer time horizons and family offices are starting to want to make direct investments themselves. And in, in some ways, businesses like Blue Wave evolved to serve kind of both those needs. When, when I was in private equity for almost 20 years, yeah, we had to transform these companies. We had to use third parties. Third parties were really hard to use because every need was different. And I had nowhere to go other than having very expensive, highly educated people Google problem in industry and call buddies. And that's how we found the resources we would use. I said, why isn't there like a, like an Yelp or an Amazon for business? And that's what we created. So it's, you know, this magic toolbox for business builders where they can go to one place to get the very best for everything they need. In the same vein, family offices are using us because they want to be able to make direct investments. And they don't have the mechanized teams that private equity can. And so they come to us and say, who are the, or what are the groups that I can use to very effectively assess a company in diligence, but then also build the company with a long horizon period of time where maybe slower but steadier wins the race. And, you know, maybe it's not the, the fastest way to roam, but it's the most certain path to build this company to something transformational. And so both of these groups are also coming to us for same resources, but for in some ways different reasons. And have you seen, you know, now, now that some of these, just the wealth creation has been so immense, call it the last five or 10 years, especially within the tech world, some of these family offices seem to be behaving like just typical private equity firms in many ways. They have an internal deal team. They have a CIO. They have a CEO, a whole full C-suite built out, including tech stack. And what I've been hearing more and more of is that they are competing directly with not only the old wirehouses, 
but the but the larger private equity firms and venture capital firms for deals and talent. Could you maybe provide some commentary on what you're hearing and seeing from your clients in that regard? Hundred percent. And so there are a number of family offices that have kind of mechanized their capabilities, where particularly the families where they they have know how from the businesses that they built. There's a lot of either whether they're currently have an operating company or they did have an offering company, you had a, a family office, patriarch, matriarch, who who really were had a, a lifetime ability business. So there's a lot of know-how within these companies. And so they're building out teams to do that. And I think they also, in some ways, view the world through the word and versus or. So it's not like they're not also investing in GPs because they're still doing that. And they're also co-investing with GPs which is a great way to get started in direct investing, by the way, is co-invest with the GPs where you already have relationships, where you can get that direct investment and see, you know, maybe a little bit how the, how the, you know, the process works, but they're also building their own teams and they're doing it through kind of a comprehensive asset allocation model where they can do, you know, kind of A, B and C versus A or B or C. So along those lines, in, in terms of your firm and, and how you work, I mean, you have a, a, a multifaceted business, but when it comes to the deals, say you know M and A, direct investing, who are the groups that are getting it right and why? And then obviously the flip side, what are the potholes that people keep stepping into that don't allow them to successfully invest directly into this M and A space? It's it's really interesting. You know, from the vantage of, of, of Blue Wave, because we work with more than 500 of the top private equity funds across the country. And I kind of, I kind of joke with my friends who are still in PE. You know, I was pretty good at, at what I did when I was in PE. I was a partner there uh, at a really uh, top knowledge fund in New York. There were certainly others who were better than me, but I was pretty good. And I, I kind of joke, you know, after seeing over years and years how 500 PE firms do things. I'd be almost like Neo if I ever came back to PE, where I'd see the ones and zeros cascading down, <laughs> seeing the world in slow motion. But the, you know, it, it, there is a pattern to what we see in terms of really top-notch PE firms. And, and one of the things that we do as part of uh, our, our firm is we have this kind of karma school of business where we just try to do good things with good people. And we started having LPs coming to us, you know, whether it's family officers or institutional investors saying, what do you see? What are the patterns of really good firms that we should look for? And we thought, why don't we just, why don't we just put it out there and say, here's what we look for and then recognize those who we think do it really well. And so we came up with a list of top PE innovators and it was a group of 50 firms that all do it really well. And we really look for, for four things or things that we, we kind of noticed that are differential and innovative in PE. And it's one, it's the PE firms that recognize that the business of PE has to be run like a business and less like a partnership. And so they're, they're treating their business as if there's a, there's a front end, there's a back end, there's operations, there's marketing, there's sales, everything that they would have run one of their own portfolio companies with. And there are companies that are starting to do that really well within private equity. Two, they look at due diligence with an eye towards transformation in equipping value creation plans. And so when I started in PE, so much of the world was about trust but verify. Is the seller or the seller's representations correct with what the business actually is? Check the numbers, make sure there's paying for their Microsoft licenses. Maybe there's a server, air conditioning server closet. 
Now it's how do we fundamentally change this company, turn it into something it was never intended to be because we're paying a nearly perfect price for an imperfect business where it was exactly opposite when I was coming up in PE. And so they're, they're starting with the fact that they're going to fundamentally make a bigger and better, more valuable business. And then next, we look at companies that really are proactive in value creation. And they're saying, we're going to actually not only find things out, but do something about it in partnership with the leadership teams of our portfolio companies. And then lastly, the thing that we think is really important is the concept of ESG. It's this idea that you can have frosting with cheese on it. You can do good things for the business that also align with things that are good for the world, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And so there are business, you know, a lot of the P firms are, are doing a lot of these great things. And in some ways, they're just not getting credit for it because they didn't know that they could categorize the stuff that they're already doing falls within this concept called ESG, which is you know, getting more and more clarity as time goes on. So I, I don't know if that addresses it, but that's kind of how we looked at it internally, at least have recognized those who do it well. And in terms of you know, red flags, things that maybe when you put your consultant advisory hat on, if somebody listening is you know, considering investing with the group or evaluating a, a direct co-investment opportunity, what are some warning signs that you see you know, that, that over and over again lead to poor results? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And part of the challenge is the, the cliche in private equities, you've seen one private equity fund and you see one private equity fund. And so I think rather than saying red flags, I would look for groups that do those four things. And, and, you know, they treat their business like a business. They know that you, you have to, you have to be hands on in both diligence and value creation. And then you're tracking the things you're doing that are holistically improving companies. If, if they're not doing those four things, that's, that would almost be my red flag. If, if they're not meeting those standards or if they're not making steps towards doing that, then I would be probably, I, I, I would want to dig deeper. You referenced a, a big number in terms of the number of private equity funds active today and, and the capital behind them. I've always wondered, I mean, I go to these networking events and I have a lot of friends who are GP sponsors. How can the ecosystem support as many lower middle market buyout firms as there are in the world? And how do, how do multiples and valuations sustain that investment thesis? Another great question. In some ways, Econ 101 is playing out of the industry. And, and what's, what's kind of telling is the, the business when, you know, this is kind of anecdotal. When I started in the industry in the late nineties, early two thousands and PE, our models, our base case models would start in our thirties, you know, in terms of 30% IRRs. And then when, when I spun out to pursue kind of this entrepreneurial dream here, you know, my models were in the low twenties, high teens. And, you know, in, in some ways you say, wow, that's, that's a lot of efficiency that's kind of been, that's become you know, part of the ecosystem as the industry has matured and every industry matures over time. And, and it's, it's easy for me to say that's a, that's a huge decline and everything's relative. But at the end of the day, the industry is still pretty much beating every benchmark. And so for the, for, for me, when I came in, I remember I was like, wow, I wish I was 10 years older. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're, when you're junior in the industry and the economics don't really fall to you. And then every 10 years, I would say, I wish I were 10 years older. And I think what I came to appreciate is it's still really good. It's just not what it used to be. And so it's kind of like traffic in Nashville. Yeah. For, for those who moved here from New York, you know, where it was, it was, uh, 
it was rush day. You know, I-95 was always packed. Whereas when I moved to Nashville with I-65, it's really still a rush hour. And so both are still, you know, the rush hour is still pretty good. It's just not what it used to be. And so I think there's still plenty of, of, of interesting economics in the industry. It's just not what it used to be. But then again, it's also a lot more accessible to a broader pool of investors. Whereas in the early days, it was really a pretty small ecosystem that was not only exclusive to being in the industry, but also those who could invest in it. So I guess it's two sides of the coin. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So we're recording this heading into the second half of the year, 2022. What are the investing themes that you see going on internally with GPs right now? And then what is exciting LPs in terms of opportunity, thesis, et cetera? It's, you know, obviously the, the big thing that is on everyone's mind right now is this kind of triple play of economic pressures you know, from associated with Asia, Ukraine, inflation, and Federal Reserve policy trying to land this plane and taking inflation down after, you know, with, you know, being in historic highs. And so the industry is first and foremost, I think, getting selective. The, the PE world understands that they need to invest throughout economic cycles. And I think they're very good at that, but they are looking at quality assets. And so the quality assets are still absolutely trading and active. P firms themselves, though, they're saying we're going to be more selective and maybe not lean as far out on our skis as we would have three years ago because the, you know, the, the opportunity to, to, to delever in between and, and professionalize the runway is just a little shorter. The one thing that I think the P industry is really good at, though, and we have this, we'll be presenting data in, in the not too near future that kind of demonstrates this, is they're really good at running towards the storm versus running away. And so when they see kind of economic challenges, they, they view this as, as an opportunity by being able to use what they're really good at. They're able to quickly grab information, assimilate it, make decisions, and, and then act on it. And, and, and use that to their advantage while others maybe kind of circle wagons and, 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 and maybe cower in the face of the storm, they run towards it. So a lot of the P firms that we talk with are saying, this is a time for opportunity where we can maybe invest at better multiples. Maybe we can consolidate market segments where competitors will be available. We can bring talent in that you know, historically was never available and suddenly they are because people are letting people go. We can grab and, and expand in segments and bring in other products while, while people are, are maybe retracting. I think all of this comes from that longer perspective, but also the agility and the proactiveness of the industry. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you see the big institutional money liking it because they're really good at generating returns, you know, through the peaks and troughs. Let's talk about human talent, human capital. That's part of your business is finding the right professionals for the right groups. How fierce is that competition right now? And have you seen compensation packages? And where are they relative to, to the last, you know, 20 years of your experience? 
It's it's everywhere. It's, it's funny. We, it, well, when I play this, it's interesting. We had a we had a, a forum where we'll bring cohorts of PD together. We just had one, and one of the almost everyone we do the topic is human capital. And one of the main topics of the day were that we were all discussing was one of the biggest inflationary pressures in the entire economy right now is labor wages. And that doesn't get nearly the credit that, that oil and, and, you know, other kind of commodities do. Labor wages have gone up substantially in part because there's scarcity of labor, but all the, all the costs that every day all of us are experiencing, our, our, our team members and employees have to bear that too. So the companies have to, have to put, pass those on. So, so our, our own employees can kind of keep up. And so that's something that I think where you, you have a combination of people who have left the labor force. So there's fewer people in it. You have, you have inflationary pressures that are going all the way down to inflation. It's hard to push the labor wages onto customers, if you will. So the pressure is, is everywhere. And it's certainly going all the way to the, to even the, the private equity professionals, investment banking professionals, attorneys. Everyone is feeling it right now, just like I think any other industry is. And they're, they're doing what they can to communicate things like total rewards, like, all the other good things that come with being in a great company. And, and the other thing that's been really kind of fascinating to watch within private equity is this concept of culture. When I came up, you know, I'll, I'll profess, it wasn't something that people really focused on. It was a bunch of type A plus people who took hills and they would take that hill every time they need to, but they didn't think about the work experience. So in some ways, it's been a positive on the industry because the industry is really leaning in and appreciating things like corporate values and cultures, even within the firms themselves. And that's another way they're addressing it, which net-net, I think, is going to be a catalyst for a really good, and not only that industry, but throughout the economy. One of the things I want to talk to you about was this generational shift happening amongst GPs. I liked how you talked about how the best-in-class private equity groups treat their companies like the businesses they own and less like an old-school partnership. I won't name names, but I've seen and experienced some divorces and blowups happening in Nashville because they cannot manage through this transition of first generation GP to a second generation GP. And I would assume it's only going to accelerate as these baby boomers get older and try to figure out what to do. What are you seeing in terms of that dynamic playing out amongst your clients? How are people addressing it? Is it creating opportunity? Is it a risk that LPs need to be aware of, et cetera? It, it, it's a, another very timely topic in private equity. And if you ask, why are there 5,000 private equity firms? In part, the point that you're talking about is, uh, Ryan, is one of the primary reasons. They, the firms that start in the industry, G1 or G1 and a half of PE, they didn't have these continuity plans in place. And so ultimately you would get this kind of tectonic pressure between junior partners and the founding partners. And what would happen eventually is the junior partners would get fed up and they found a fund and they bring out their own fund and then they start their own fund and they don't do the same thing. And then there's the junior and senior partner tectonic pressure and then their junior partners spin out. And so it's, this has been kind of this circle of life in private equity for a long time. And I think what's happening, you know, this everyone's seen this movie enough times now that we're really starting to see a lot of the GPs being thoughtful about this. And it's really kind of these next-gen PE firms that have maybe seen it happen a couple of times where they're putting transition continuity plans in place. 
The other things that are happening is you have some of these funds that are able to come in and that are almost like secondary funds and take positions in GPs that facilitate those transitions. And so they're taking some of the economic pressure off of the founders to let them kind of monetize maybe this franchise that they built and want to be be rewarded for that while also well allowing you know new junior partners to come up. So it's a it's a very important topic. It's something that I think the industry is getting better at, but still needs to make progress on as as they realize that they're in the business of a business and and not the business of a partnership, particularly if they want continuity in kind of a, a sustaining legacy of a firm. You were really good during COVID about being communicative, transparent. You have a great newsletter that I, I want to call out at the end of the show as well. And you you were really good about being engaged during COVID. I, I read all your stuff. It was terrific. Now with the benefit of hindsight, what were some of the things that forced the industry to improve because of COVID? And what are some of the negative implications of that two-year span, hopefully, that you've seen remain in the industry? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, it's a complicated question. There's, there's a lot of things that that came out of like anything crisis that end up being very positive. I think the the single biggest shift that that we saw take place is this kind of embracement of the complexity of humanity. You know, as as, as kind of labor shortages were driven and and everyone was was kind of broken apart into these little square boxes on Zoom. People had to figure things out and they had to figure out things like culture. They had to figure out things like how to keep people engaged. And, you know, so if we look at, at this kind of engine at Blue Wave, you know, in, in the beginning of 2018, 17% of the projects that came through the Blue Wave marketplace were related to human. In the first quarter of 2022, 42% of the projects were. And so the private equity industry, I think, is very much investing in it. And so the hottest hire. And all of private equity is head of human capital. And so they're realizing that you have to holistically manage the people side and bring this kind of humanity to an industry that's been kind of a dollars and cents industry. And, and not because they, they, they meant to be unfocused on it. It was just there were other things that were kind of gaining mind share. And so I think that's, that's one of the biggest things. The other thing, I, I think it really calmed their ability to manage through a crisis. And so, you know, one of the things I alluded to earlier is what we saw in our data, and we, we see very interesting data that comes through these projects that you can discern kind of trends through. I think they, they, they learn to be incredibly even more agile in, in bringing methodologies of dealing with kind of tough times and managing through them. And so I think that's something that's also been very positive. As you think about super trends, you know, crises are in some ways catalyzed these things that never quite got going, but were always you know, kind of bubbling up. And so two super trends that I think PE has really gone behind that were always kind of like everyone said was the next next thing, always has been, always will be, is one digitization. And so you were really seeing groups jump in and realize that you don't need to like have people typing stuff in. You can digitize things, you can automate things, you can let the robots do the stuff that robots are good at and have the people do the things that people like doing. So we saw a lot of embracement about technology that not only becomes more efficient, but I think it improves satisfaction within the, the team members because they get to do the things that they like doing and humans like doing. The other thing is that's really catalyzed, I think, and this is the whole concept of analytics. It really caused the, the really good firms to dive into their data to help make decisions. 
and realize that if you have good data, you can make better decisions. And if you rapidly iterate around it, you can make very interesting kind of decisions about business and life, et cetera. And so those were, those were all of the things that, I, you know, some of the things that really, I think, catalyzed and, and the super trends that became trends LMP, but elsewhere. And so I'll pause there. I don't know if that, that kind of addresses it. We can do the flip side of the, the coin as well. Yeah, no, I, I think I've seen the same thing play out in my industry in terms of real estate, pretty old school, traditional business. And COVID taught a lot of a, a, all of us that we can do much more digitally. We can do much more automated. And you know, you realize that you can spend your time more strategically for highest and best use of the enterprise. So let's go to the other side. I mean, what are some things that maybe you've seen change because of COVID that are negative for the industry or you know, you're not especially excited about? I, I think the biggest challenge that everyone is working through is how do you learn how to operate in, a, in this hybrid world that has evolved? Particularly industries like private equity, uh, investment banking, legal professions, they very much have apprenticeship models where you need lots and lots and lots of laps around the track to learn things and there's a pattern recognition. I think a lot of the, the industry is, is struggling to, to kind of equip the, the more up-and-coming professionals with that apprenticeship, and they've kind of lost out. And, and the hard thing that I think everyone's dealing with is what's that right middle ground? Because in some ways, this hybrid, there's a lot that's come out of that's great about the hybrid model, you know, where you don't have to be maybe cutting out a lot of the face time. On the flip side, people, I think, are having a lot of, you know, it's always mental health issues because when you work at home, you live at work. And so finding that right balance is something that I think everyone in PE is struggling with, but I think probably everywhere in, you know, in, in, in the world is right now. And so the big transition that, that, that will, will be very interesting to see how it takes place is where that kind of shakes out. And I think you're also seeing a lot of firms realize that it's, you know, if, you know, I think too often people view the world through binary lenses. You know, you're either going to be fully virtual or fully in person. This, you know, it's, it's that in between that, that's going to make the difference. And I think a lot of firms that have found that at least have found that balance are getting a real competitive advantage because they're getting people collaborating, seeing people and, 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 and able to kind of find that, that instant kind of feedback loop a little more beneficial while also getting the benefits of some of the hybrid models. Many of the larger financial services folks globally have proclaimed that globalization is peaked and now we're in an era of deglobalization. When you talk to private equity groups, GPs and sponsors and big LPs, are they seeing that, feeling it? Do you believe that? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think where, where I would characterize it is the pendulum is it, like, once again, it's not going to be globalization or not. I think like everything, we always see the pendulum swings way too far one way and then goes the other. What COVID has catalyzed in so many people of mind is supply chain dependency. And particularly when you're dependent on another country's kind of posture as it relates to open or closed, and you have to get things, you know, eight weeks on the water, and then you can't get them through the port. People have really appreciated that you can't have an N equals one supply chain, um, because then you get these kind of huge systematic shifts that come in and you're left with, with nothing to kind of sh- to provide. Because of the just-in-time nature of all these supply chains is kind of exposed you know, these really, really 
dramatic weaknesses and in kind of this global ecosystem that we built. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of people saying we have to have more of a portfolio approach. We, we can't just leave China. China is into one of the world's growing, fastest growing markets and has been and will be increasingly important, but you can't have everything over there. Um, you can't, you know, in the same vein, you can't, you can't have everything here. It's this idea of maybe spreading your chips a little bit and playing more of a risk adjusted game than being wholly dependent on things. You put out a, I've referenced this before, a terrific newsletter. And one of my favorite parts is the, the comfort food is good, but the life hacks no. are great. You have any favorites yourselves or did you get outsized feedback on a, a few versus the others? I, it's so funny on these newsletters, the, the single biggest thing that gets engaged with is, is the life hacks. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's great. So during COVID, one of my big accomplishments that I was proud about was that apparently I sold out the entire country of inflatable movie screens for your backyard. <laughs> and all these life hacks, I don't, there's no economic interest in it. It's just things that I think are, are cool and interesting. And I've always been a curious person. And to be, fair, to be very clear, I don't make any money on these things. It's just things that I like. And so the inflatable movie screen was a really popular one when, when we're at the, the summer of 2020. This year, some of the as people are traveling again right now. I found this little gizmo that clips onto the tray of the plane in front of you where you can hold your iPhone and watch a TV show. It's like 12 or 13 bucks on Amazon. It's great. Every time I'm on a plane, some people ask me what that is. Yeah, I love that. Um, I guess with the, the two things with summer coming is my tips. Okay. One is for steaks. For those of you who like steaks, there's a concept called the reverse sear. And so if you Google that on the internet, it'll show you this amazing way to cook a perfectly, whatever temperature steak you like, medium rare is what I prefer. And so what you do is you slowly cook it at low temperatures on your, I use a big green egg. And if you do that, you can, you, you take it up to temperature very slowly. And then you sear it at the very end to get that caramelization from the Maillard effect that people really like. And so he really wanted an amazing steak this summer. Look up the reverse sear. And then the other thing that I've added to my game care of my wife is this little Breville smoke gun. And you can put these little smoke tips in them and you can kind of add a smoke essence to any food, but you can also put them in like a summer cocktail and make it taste a little smoky. And it's just a cool gizmo and it adds them some theater to whatever you're making if you have people over and you can show them fire up this gizmo. It's, it's, it's really kind of a lot of fun. Love it. Love it. And I, I own a Traeger and the reverse here. It's a it's this like the amateur green egg, but the Traeger's is legit. It works. It works. It does work. Sean, I want to thank you for the time. It's been awesome. Like I said, definitely want people to check out the newsletter. The site, if you're at all involved with private equity, you need to connect with Sean and his firm because they know everybody and they're doing incredibly good work. If people are interested in engaging with you and the firm, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So you can find us on the internet at uh, bluewave.net. It's B-L-U-W-A-V-E.net. You can also find me on LinkedIn. We're incredibly responsive. Anytime you need us, we're here to help. And if you're from Darien, Connecticut, you might recognize the name of our company. Yeah, as a lacrosse player, I knew it right away. Uh, <laughs> I definitely I definitely recognized it. So Blue Wave, I love it. Well, Sean, thank you so much for the time. This is great. And I wish you the best of luck. I hope you have an awesome summer. And I'm sure I'll bump into you in town soon. 
Ryan, thanks so much. I look forward to catching up with you sooner than later. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.